Take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 2, looking at verses 5 through 8 this morning. We are continuing the uh, theme of Live Worthy that began way back in verse 27 of chapter 1, as citizens of heaven live your life worthy. Uh, if you remember, I pointed out to you that that at the time was the uh, that was the first imperative of Philippians. It was the first time Paul had said, do this. And so that's kind of been our, our continuing theme. It actually, that do this, that live your life worthy, gets us to chapter 2, verse 18. Everything between those two verses is building on that idea of live worthy. So, we are continuing to see how we are to live worthy. This week, we are looking at emptied and humbled. Paul gets to another imperative. This was actually the third. If you remember from two weeks ago, uh, we saw in verse 2 of chapter 2, make my joy complete, he said, as a pastor speaking to his people, do this for me, he's saying, the second imperative. But the third imperative carries now more of the um, marching orders type of imperative, less uh, a, an appeal. This is a command from the Lord. Live wor worthy, emptied, and humbled. Uh, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Jim Elliott wrote that in his diary on October 28, 1949. Uh, you're probably familiar with the story of uh, him, he and of him and his four friends and their families going to the Waoni Indians uh, in Ecuador and uh, spending a couple of years trying to reach into that community. Six years after he writes this statement, this personal uh, uh, mission statement, uh, I would say, uh, he is killed while taking the gospel to uh, the Waorani Indians in Ecuador. And we, uh, having never had the opportunity to share the gospel and the love of Jesus with that group, by all accounts, he would have been considered a failure uh, just based on that. He went, he spent years, he died, and he didn't achieve what he was after. But he is a great example, a great picture to us of being emptied and humbled, as we're going to see it this morning as we look at Philippians 2, 5 through 8. That is the attitude of Jesus, and that's exactly what Paul says here in 2, 5 through 8. Uh, read with me this passage of scripture, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ, of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. So we see our first imperative there right off the bat in verse 5. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus or sermon point number one, be like Jesus. And it can't be any clearer. Paul could not have stated it any more succinctly or obviously what he was trying to get the believers in Philippi to do. Be like Jesus. Adopt this attitude. Now, he, he's referencing the attitude that he's talked about in verses 1 through 4 and all the way back, actually, probably to verse uh, at least verse 27 of chapter 1. And generally, of course, everything he's talked about so far. Adopt this the same attitude. There's, it's, it's an imperative sentence, so we understand in English the understood you 
right? You learned this in third, fourth, fifth grade, somewhere around in, along in grammar. When you were learning how to write in sentences and you learned about imperative, declarative, interrogative, uh, and there are others, I think, um, exclamatory, uh, you learned that in an imperative sentence, you don't have to have a subject. English is like that. If you've taken other foreign languages, you know Spanish, for example, you don't have to have the subject in a sentence when you say something. Even if it's not an imperative sentence, the verb tells you what the subject is. But in English, we don't get to do that unless it's an imperative. If I yell, stop, everybody around me knows he's talking to me. It's an imperative sentence. There's an understood you at the front of it. You, stop. In this case... I believe Paul had here an understood y'all. Yes. An understood y'all. So he's saying y'all adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. Y'all do this. The, the, the reason, I mean, the, the, the verb there, the imperative, is in the plural. So we know he's talking to uh, the entire group. He's writing to the church in Philippi. So we get that immediately. But we need to hear that today as believers in the church. He is talking to us. And it's important that we hear it because we need to understand that this is both a personal and a corporate command. He is just as clearly telling me to adopt the mind, uh, the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, as he is telling us to adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. It is, an, it is a command to everyone individually and to us as a group. And there's a little bit of nuance there. Adopt the same attitude in you, but adopt the same attitude among y'all. So it's not just that our church would have the same attitude as Jesus, but it's that in the body of the church, we would reflect to each other and uh, uh, relate to each other in the same attitude as Jesus or with the same attitude as Jesus. So there's more here than just y'all act like Jesus so that the, when you're dealing with the world or even when you're dealing with each other, but that it should be obvious that the attitude of Jesus is the attitude that, has, that, it, that, that permeates and controls the church. Be like Jesus, church members. Be like Jesus, church and then he's going to spend, through verse 11, telling us clearly what that looks like. Maybe one of the most beautiful passages of Scripture in the New Testament that, that give us an image of Christ. There's lots of discussion of did Paul use a, a worship song that was already being circulated or not. Uh, I doubt that he took something that already existed and... and manipulated it for scripture it's okay if he did but it seems like this uh, the way it's written you, you have to struggle well how would the song work this way and that way and and if you don't worry about that and you just realize he's just writing beautiful prose you get a picture of christ that is just about unequaled anywhere else in the new testament but i don't have time to spend uh all or to look at all of it this morning so we can only go through verse 8. The first two sections, he tells us that Jesus emptied himself as God and humbled himself as a man. First, he emptied himself as God. So, what, what was Jesus' attitude? First, that he would empty himself. Verses 6 through uh, 7b, kind of the, the, the first two clauses. You get to the period probably after the word humanity, Jesus, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, uh, servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. He emptied himself. What does it mean for Jesus to empty himself? And let me say at the, the beginning of this message, and, and even as you read this, this passage... It is very easy to slip into heresy. 
when you're talking about this passage. Anytime you're talking about the Trinity or how Jesus is both God and man, there is a razor-thin line that is orthodox truth. And real easy, real quickly, one side or the other, you slip off into heresy. Because we cannot comprehend how the Trinity can work. And we not, cannot comprehend how Jesus could both empty himself of God, of being God, and yet remain God fully. How he can be fully man and remain being God. How he could be incarnate and just like us in every way except without sin and, and yet maintain all of his divinity. And of course then we get into how we can have uh, three persons, one God, and then our head just explodes. So we have to be careful. And Paul is careful and he uses words in here that if we aren't careful we look at and say, oh likeness oh form oh he looked like a human but he wasn't or he had the appearance uh, of God or in it was the form of God but wasn't God and what we need to understand is Paul is using words throughout this passage to say when you saw Jesus you saw everything you'd expect as a man and when you saw Jesus you saw everything you would expect as God. And when he was God, he had all the characteristics and qualities of God. He was God. So his language is both generic and careful, because even Paul knew, I ain't real sure how to, how to tell y'all Jesus is God and man, 100% both the same time. But he is. So, with that caveat, we get into it. Paul, Jesus emptied himself as God, Paul says. See, Jesus knew himself and his position. He knew who he was. He knew he was God. Like I said, he had those characteristics and qualities that define God. If you're going down through the list, what is everything that makes God, God? And if you could have a complete, uh, uh, full exhaustive list of all those qualities and you could think of every one of them and you began to apply them to Jesus you would find that okay he had every one therefore he was God if you begin to apply those qualities to me you find out I'm missing a couple so I'm not he is not God obviously he doesn't have all the characters and qualities characteristics and qualities but Jesus as we line them up he does and Jesus knew who he was he knew he was God. He existed in the form of God. He knew his position. Jesus did. He knew that he had equality with God. He was the second person of the Trinity. And again, we can quickly get in trouble here. But simply, I want to say that the Trinity is uh, three who's, one what. Now, even that, uh, if I have friends from seminary or professors or other preachers that watch this clip, they could probably tell me ten different ways I just committed a heresy by saying that. But, so, so that does not encompass it all, but that gives kind of a picture of what the Trinity is. It, it, three who's make up one what. And Jesus is the second person of that trinity. They are fully equal. They are all the same. They all have the same divine will. They all have the same divine mind. And Jesus knew that of himself. He knew who he was. He knew his position, and he gave it all up. He gave it up. Turn his back on it. It, it, he, it says in Scripture... Uh, he did not consider equality with God as something, my translation says, to be exploited. Others say to be grasped or to be held onto. One way to consider that is he did not consider selfish ambition was never a part of what he thought. 
that word to be exploited, held onto, or grasped actually finds its root in the word robbery. Taking something that isn't yours or taking something that you really, really want. Taking something in a manner that you shouldn't have. That's not what Jesus did. He didn't consider his divinity. He didn't consider his equality with God. He didn't consider his 100% godness as something to be held onto, to be grasped, to be uh, uh, squeezed and, and, and clenched until uh, there was no way anyone could possibly wrest it from his grasp. It was not something that he was going to sit and hoard and keep to himself. He didn't take advantage of his certain, and I mean certain as in absolute, his complete, his innate privilege. That is who he was. He was God, and he was every, in every way God, and he had all the, the benefits and the perks and, and everything that was his, or that was God's, was his because he was God, not just the second person of the Trinity, not just the Son of God, but God himself. So he gets all of it. And he said, I paraphrase, He didn't hold on to it. He didn't even desire to hold on to it, and it was rightfully his. And that's the interesting part about the, the, this word exploit or grasp or held on to coming from the word robbery. He would not have been stealing anything because it was absolutely his. Yet the word that Paul chose to use was one that carries this idea of, of this selfishness in keeping it. Jesus was not selfish in keeping what was his because he knew, and we see the third point there on the screen, his equality with God found its truest expression when he emptied himself of it. His equality with God found its truest expression when he emptied himself of it. What I mean by that is when he gave up his godness, there is nothing he could have done to been acting more like God. Selfless. Love. Saying, none of this is as important as the task I have been given as the second person of the Trinity to go to earth and incarnate as a human and the Son of God. All of this was something he could give away. This, when, when he, uh, he, he found his, his, his truest expression, and I say found his truest expression, it's not like he learned it or anything like that. I, I'm, I'm not saying he became God when he finally realized. No, I'm saying that God's truest expression of his godness showed up when Jesus used this privileged position that he had and was his by all rights for us. When he used what was his for somebody else. That's what he did in simplest terms. Instead, it was not something to be exploited, he says. In verse 7, instead he emptied himself. God in Christ became what he was not. And we, I think we struggle to get that image of God becoming what he wasn't. Because God can be anything he wants to be. Right? I mean, if he, if he wanted to, he could. He is all-powerful. He can do whatever he wants to. And, and, and yet we understand that, or at least we think, God really shouldn't want to. I mean, why would God want to be anything less than what he is? And that makes sense. We, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't expect him to want to lower himself in any fashion. And yet, that is exactly what Jesus did. What God in Christ did. And the reason he did it was not for himself. Not selfish ambition. Not to grasp 
or to hold on to or to, to commit robbery in the uh, basic form of the word, but to reach us. Jesus gave up everything. He emptied himself. And what did that emptying look like? The next phrase tells us, by assuming the form of a servant. Servant's a good word. Slave is better. It's harsher. We don't like it for obvious reasons. And yet that is the word, dalos, that he, he was a slave. He became what culture considered the absolute lowest position you could have in a society. He gave up everything as God, you know, creator, all-powerful, everything, and didn't just lower himself some, he lowered himself all the way down to humanity, and then he lowered himself even more to become a slave to the thing he had just made himself be, a human. So we've got the picture, right? God in Christ lowered himself to become human, then lowered himself further to become a slave to humans, a servant to humans. That is the picture that is the most absolute, the clearest, and the most complete picture of emptying we could ever imagine. The second person of the Trinity emptied himself of everything that was his to become something he was not. And what was was as greater, uh, was as greater than what he became as the sun is to a lit match. That is what he did. That is the expanse that he crossed. That is the lowering that he went through. And he did it by choice for us. He emptied himself as God. And he humbled himself as a man. Verses 7c, that last little phrase in 7 and verse 8. And when he had come as a man, uh, as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So, we see from this passage that a degrading incarnation was just the beginning. That that was just the start of what Jesus was going to do. When he came as the baby around 4 BC, that was just the, 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 the jumping off point. He had not yet begun to degrade himself. He came as a human. He emptied himself. He became a baby, came as a servant, came as a slave. And there was still a ways to go. Now, he was obviously fully human, right? And when he had come as a man, uh, the phrase right above it, taking on the likeness of humanity, he had come as a man. He was obviously fully human, as I said, all the qualities and characteristics that define humanity except for sin. So when they looked at Jesus, there was nothing about him. If, if, we, if we list all the characteristics and qualities that what it, of what it means to be human, Jesus had every one of them except that, he, except that he never sinned. The only quality that you and I have that he did not was that he didn't sin. We're not going to get into this morning whether he could or couldn't have. That's a long discussion, and there's still no uh, consensus answer on that. But everything else was perfectly human. And that's what he became. And, and he wasn't done at the lowering of himself to become a human slave to humans. He didn't stop there as he grew and became a man 30 years old. A human slave to humans, where you might think, okay, wow, whew, that's, a, that's a huge step. God, thanks. Appreciate that. That's some impressive work. We'd understand it if you'd stop here, and, and if you stopped here and, and you went on back. That, yeah, but he didn't. He humbled himself. 
humbled himself, verse 8. Took the lowest place is what that word humble, humble means. Took the absolute lowest place by being obedient, by becoming obedient. What does that mean? Does that mean that Jesus was disobedient at some point? No. Let's go back to that idea of the Trinity. That idea of uh, three who's, one what. The, the one what has the same mind. We would call it the, the divine mind or the divine will. And the second person of the Trinity, when he incarnated and came to earth, emptied himself of his heavenly glory and put on flesh, but not just put it on as if it was an outside suit on top of his godness, but he was fully human. When he did those things, he was still in agreement with the other two persons of the Trinity as to what he should do or what he would do when he got here. He was obedient to the Trinitarian divine mind that said the only way to save humanity is for God to go to earth and die for them. And the second person of the Trinity did that. And the second person of the, tr person of the Trinity incarnated as Jesus Christ was obedient to that divine will. The second person of the Trinity, with all the rights, power, and privilege of the Godhead, was obedient to that unified, Trinitarian, divine will. And the immortal chose mortality. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. As human, he chose to die. As human, he could have, as he stated, called legions of angels. He could have done anything along the way to stop the death, but he did not. The immortal chose mortality through humility. Because he had already chosen slavery over glory. He had already emptied himself, so now he humbles himself. It's a cascade of emptying and humbling as Jesus becomes what he had to become to save humanity. He chooses mortality, but he chooses mortality through heinous murder. This is not merely death. He's not choosing to die. I know way back when we started uh, Philippians, I, I used the Lord of the Rings as kind of a, a jumping off point for us for the idea of fellowship. Well, one of the parts of that book, that the series of books, the movies, is there are elves in the book, not, not these elves, but much cooler elves than Santa Claus's. Um, and they are immortal. They, they don't die from old age in this fantasy world. Unless they marry a mortal. And they live much, much longer than anybody else, but they eventually die. They lose their mortality. And that's kind of what I thought of when, uh, when we got here. And I guarantee you that's what Tolkien was probably thinking about when he did it. And, and there is one in the book that, that marries a mortal and... And her, her immortality begins, or rather, her, her mortality begins at that point. She chooses it. Much broader and truer scale, uh, Jesus chose that too. The immortal chose to be mortal, but not death by old age. See, that's the thing. In, in the book, elves can be killed. They, they can die. They just don't die of old age. Jesus chooses to be not just mortal and someday die of old age, but he chooses to be murdered. And he chooses, Scripture tells us, even death on a cross. So he doesn't just choose. That would have been kind of sweet, right? If, if he'd come and he just died of old age and, oh, everybody go, oh, because, you know, old Jesus you know, he loved everybody, he healed people, and he just kind of drifted away as he got old. It's a nice story. It's not what he chose. 
He instead chose to die by the most excruciating death Rome could imagine. Paul is clear here. I mean, he is in, it's intentional to bring up the cross. Nobody wore a cross around their neck in Philippi. You just didn't do that. No cross decorations in the church. The cross was a scandal for Rome. The cross was hated by Rome. The cross was, well, un- unless, actually Romans didn't care because Roman citizens couldn't be crucified. But everybody else hated it. it, it the cross contradicted everything you would think about wisdom, power, and God himself. And when you think about God on a cross, that just does not make sense. And, and when uh, Muslims today, they reject Jesus, one of the reasons being... There's no way God would die in such a humiliating manner. It's just not possible. It is a scandal. It's a stumbling block to the, to the Jews. It, it just it cannot be. The cross is not something we would talk about. It's certainly not something that would be part of God's plan. And yet, Jesus, when he emptied himself and humbled himself, he became obedient to die on the very thing that everybody said was the worst possible thing you could ha- that could happen to you. There's no way God would choose that. And yet, he did. Look, he became obedient to the point of death on a cross. Dying on the cross was part of obedience to the divine Trinitarian will. And Jesus would do it out of love for those vilest and most wanton of criminals, those most deserving of punishment and pain, those resisting and fighting, those enemies of God and all that is good and holy. He would do that for you and me. See, it's not them. It's you and me. We are the vilest and most wanton of criminals. We are the ones most deserving of punishment and pain. We are those that resist and fight. We are enemies of God, and we are all that is good and holy. And Jesus died for us. He emptied himself, and he humbled himself. Live worthy, believer. Live emptied and humbled. Uh, Rather, yes, emptied and humbled. What should I do? First, the imperative. Get that attitude. We want to talk about attitude adjustments. This is the ultimate attitude adjustment. What should I do? Get that attitude, all of it. Get Jesus' attitude, all of it. What did I just talk about for the last 25 minutes? That's what we're supposed to do. That's it. Emptied and humbled. That is what we are to do. We are to be emptied and we are to be humbled. So what does it look like to be emptied? First, get over yourself. Some diagnostic questions here. You ought to be able to run through the answers fairly quickly. Are you a member of the Trinity? Okay. You shouldn't have to think about this one. Or the next one. Are you equal to God? Okay, if you answer no to either one of those, then your emptying is easier than his. Okay? It's not as dramatic. Jesus emptied himself of glory that was by every right his. He emptied of himself of who he emptied himself of who he was. Think about that. And then stop because you'll hurt yourself. But then think about it some more. And all back. Yet we, we hold on to what we believe is our very essence. And what we have a right to keep. We hold on to these things. We say they are ours. You cannot take them away from me. And I will not give them up. It is our name, our status, 
our position, our family lines, our haughtiness, our traditions, our comforts, our arrogance, our history, our monuments, our idols, as if those things have any value in the expanse of time and the universe that begins, bends, and ends at a mere breath from our sovereign God. We hold on to these things like they matter. You know what mattered? Jesus' divinity. He didn't give up his divinity. Okay? He didn't not become he was no he didn't become not God for a little while. But the glory, the position, all of that, that mattered. That was important for the second person of the Trinity to hold on to. Yet it did not matter as much as his love for us. It did not matter as much as his saving us. And these things that we hold on to, name, status, position, family lines, haughtiness, traditions, comforts, arrogance, history, monuments, idols, all these things that we hold on to, they are worthless. And those things and much more make up that which we must empty ourselves of. And say, these things are not what is important in my life. And once we have emptied ourselves, we then become a slave to those who hate us. The lost. You hear it? Because that's what Jesus did. He emptied himself, became a human, and then became a slave human to the people who are going to celebrate his arrival. Be excited about, hey, God came to earth. Or hang him on a cross? The answer is B. Kill him. And he chose to do it anyway. And Paul says, have this attitude. He doesn't say, be kind of like Jesus. He doesn't say, pick and choose those things about Jesus that you kind of like. And the things that are easy and comfortable for you. Pick those. And if it's hard, well, I get it. Just, you know, wrong. Well, great on a curve. No. Have this attitude, believers. Empty yourself and humble yourself. Be willing to do or endure the worst thing you can imagine for someone else. Some of us think, if we're imagining, we think, the worst thing we could endure was death. I don't think it is. I, I, I really don't. I think most of us would be okay with death for our convictions if it put us out of our misery. What if the worst thing you can do for the lost is to go through misery? That's what we have to be willing to do. That is humbling ourselves. When you realize how hard the emptying was to do, how, how much it cost you, how much it hurt you, know that you have further still to go. Lord, I emptied myself. I had the attitude. I laid down all that stuff that I, no, I don't even care about me anymore. Good. We've got a ways to go yet. We have a little more to do. You're not done. Now, die. And maybe not even physical death. Die to yourself. Die to your desires. Die to, die to your wants. What we have to understand is, I don't matter. I'm not important. The gospel is. Loving my neighbor is. That's what's important. That's the attitude of Jesus. The attitude of Jesus was, it doesn't matter what I was. It doesn't even matter what I am now. It doesn't matter what, how I die. It doesn't matter how long they beat me. It doesn't matter how excruciating the death. It only matters that I am obedient 
to the Trinitarian divine will. It's only, it only matters that I do what I'm supposed to do. That is the attitude that we are to have as believers. Nothing else matters. It only matters that I am obedient. All the way to death. Death not of old age, but of agony. A life laid on the altar. This is humbled. A life laid on the altar to God, but a life that is taken by those you're called to serve. God, I'm fine laying my life on the altar to you. I'll give my life to God, but I ain't giving it to those people. And he says that's exactly the people that are going to take it. That's exactly what you are called to do. But I'm somebody, God. You're nobody. I mean, you're somebody to somebody, sure, but you're nobody to God. I mean, you're somebody to God, but you're nobody compared to God. You are not more important than your calling. That's what I mean. You are not more important than your obedience. And, and, and dying for those that hate us contradicts everything the world says is right. I mean, that, goes, that, that especially goes against our American way, our, our Constitution. Everything our inner voice says is right. We don't die for those we hate, or rather, we don't die for those who hate us. We take them out. And Jesus says, die for them. As a matter of fact, don't just die for them. Die at their hands to show them my love. There ain't a part of me that says, well, that makes sense. Because it doesn't. But it's not meant to. We give up every freedom, every right, every privilege, every convenience, every dime, every breath, every minute of your life for the vilest, most wanton of criminals, the most deserving of punishment and pain, those resisting and fighting, those enemies of God, and all that is good and holy, we give up everything for everyone else. Nope, doesn't say serve yourself anywhere in there. It says love your neighbor. It says serve others. It says die. The day Jim Elliott and the four other men were speared to death by the Wararani, there were loaded rifles in their airplane. A few feet from them. They had everything they needed to defend themselves. The Wairani had spears. They had rifles. You know, spear to a gunfight. Bad planning. They told the girls, as they called them, they would not use the rifles to defend themselves. No matter what happened, they would not kill the Wairani. See, they were confident of their eternity. Jim and... Steve and, or Nate, uh, 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 Steve and Roger and Ed, and I'm not going to remember the other guy's name. They were confident of their eternity, but they were equally as confident of the Wa'arani's eternity. And they would not be the conduit for their souls to go to hell by killing them. They would die first. Do you see the picture? They were emptied and humbled. They were willing to die for people who hated them. For people as far as they knew at the moment of their death would never know Christ. And they were willing to die for them. Emptied and humbled. Of course we know that just a couple of years later the gospel changed the Wa'arani people forever when salvation came to them. And I don't know if you remember, but it was just uh, four to six weeks ago, Minkaye, a, a Wa'arani who had killed, 
I think Ed and Roger died telling, uh, I wish I'd written it down, what he said at his, at his, when he would go and talk to people. They brought us the God's carvings, the God's carvings, and we were able to change who we were. And now we know we will be with the, the, the great God because of his son. I mean, very, very clear and simple proclamation of the gospel. We, we have another picture. We don't have just Jim Elliott. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You know your good friend or your family member that you prayed and prayed and prayed would receive, receive Christ and just never did? You know those people that you think, well, they just, boy, they, they sure did live like the devil because that's all they had or whatever. Jesus died for them. And they are the ones that killed him. It was their sin that killed him. And he died anyway. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we are yet here, we should be willing to die for them too. Emptied and humbled. Now, maybe you don't have a relationship with Jesus that would allow you to adopt his attitude. See, that's the thing. You can't have the attitude of Jesus without having Jesus himself. And so we come to the point now where I explain the gospel to you, where we see that God's design was for us to have a relationship with him, a perfect relationship born in the Garden of Eden. And that was his plan, that was his design, and sin ruined that. Sin ruined that. And sin always messes up God's design. Sin is our disobedience to God. And it is our nature, it is our default. We do it and we will do it. And every time we sin, life gets a little more broken. Brokenness is the result of our sin. And we see a broken life right now, wherever we look. Flip on a news channel, it does not matter. Brokenness. Pain, anger, hatred, death, murder, violence, over and over and over. If we don't believe in a broken world, I'm not sure what it's going to take to convince us. And it's all a result of sin. And there is no fix for the brokenness. There's no fix that we can do. There there are steps we can take. And yes, church, we must be holy as believers. We must repent and do things better. But even our actions aren't going to bring true change unless it's the action of sharing the gospel and someone believing. Because it it is only the gospel that can heal the brokenness. So if we repent and believe, repent of our sin, and believe the gospel, believe in Jesus Christ, Son of God, perfect, incarnate Son of God, second person of the Trinity, coming to earth, living a perfect life, being murdered, choosing mortality instead of immortality, being murdered on the cross, but doing it in obedience. He was not surprised, he wasn't shanghaied, he wasn't hijacked, it was what he was planning to do. Dying on the cross, taking my sin, my punishment for that sin, taking your sin and your punishment for that sin. If we believe that, and then once he was dead, good and dead, and I say good and dead, because three days later he was still good but not dead. He comes back from the grave and he proves his victory over sin and death. If we will repent of our sin and believe that, we'll be saved. And then we can begin to recover and pursue God's design in part, or maybe even fully, by being emptied and humbled. That's your ability. That's your decision to make today. Will you follow Christ? Will you trust Him as your Savior, not 
a list, not rules, but your Savior. Will you trust him and follow him? Pray with me. Father, thank you for your clear word. Lord, it's hard. It, it, this, this is not easy, but you never said the Christian life was going to be easy. You never said, oh, hey, hey, we've got a cruise for you. Just, you know, trust Jesus. Sit back and relax. God, we, we know that we, we have signed up for, well, we've signed up for death. Lord, we know we've signed up for life eternal. And Lord, I pray that we as believers would be emptied and humbled. That, that we would empty ourselves and we would humble ourselves. Lord, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, empower us to empty ourselves and to humble ourselves. We would put aside everything that we think is important about us. And we would be willing to suffer and endure anything all the way up to an excruciating death for the lost. That is your attitude, Jesus, and that should be ours. God, I pray for those who have heard this message and they need a relationship with Jesus Christ. They need to repent of their sins, trust Jesus as their Savior, have that moment of salvation, that point in time where they have believed, where you receive them and then you never let them go. And I pray that you would work on those hearts today that are here or that are listening from a distance. And Lord, you would get the glory and then they would begin to empty and humble themselves and serve you with all their lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Each one of us needs to respond to this message this morning. Some of you may need to accept Christ, or maybe you need to follow in obedience and baptism. Maybe you need to lead a life of holiness, and I'm talking about being emptied and humbled. Let God use you in a way that you haven't imagined. I was thinking this week, there was a, a, an IMB missionary uh, um, sending service they did it online this year because it would have been at the convention but uh, we didn't have the convention and there were men, uh, uh, husbands and wives in their 50s 60s and 70s going to the mission field sometime some for the eighth time some for the first there's nobody here too young or to be old or too old to be called to lay down their lives for jesus in sulfur or in pick a country Nobody, nobody here is outside the calling of God. So, I don't know what God is asking you to do, telling you to do, commanding the, you, you to do that you've not been doing, but I pray today as we sing, as we do business with him this morning, that you would respond to that. If you would like prayer, grab me or Tom or Amy uh, out in the back. We'd love to pray with you, talk to you more about how you can have a relationship with Jesus, or maybe just pray about what God's doing in your heart. Uh, if you'd like to... Uh, pray at your seat there. You may, of course, if you want to kneel, and I'm going to go ahead and open up the rails if you want to come, but if you don't go where somebody else has already been, let's keep our distance even on the rails, uh, and uh, we'll make sure and clean those before next Sunday. Empty yourself and humble yourself, even as we sing this morning. Let's stand and sing. <laughs>